earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Are you in your car? At home? Elsewhere on your mobile device? Listening with family or a friend or two? Catching the podcast? Well, we're up to part seven now in our series, Faith's Fundamentals, Building a Solid Belief System. We began with unraveling the nature of God and the triune Godhead as revealed in the Bible, including the roles and relationships of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and their relation to the triune God. Then from the nature of God, we went on to explore the nature of man and the uneasy and politically incorrect subject of sin in the two-part installment called Sin, What's the Big Deal Anyway? and Sin and the Solution, The Big Deal Revisited. Well, friends, a natural next step would be to transition from sin to the topic of salvation. So today's part seven will be salvation, the ultimate search and rescue operation. And before we sink our teeth into that, I just want to remind you that the podcasts of A Word from the Word are available at faithtalk1360.com. Search under Local Program Podcasts. And, friends, A Word from the Word is now on Apple Podcast and Spotify Podcast. Well, an older but still modern praise chorus, and one of my absolute favorites, opens with this line, Assembled as your people, we have come to seek your face. For each there is a story of your amazing grace. I get choked up every time I try to sing those words because I marvel at the fact that each one of us has a story. My wife has her story, which is very different from my story. And each and every one of you listening today has your own story of God's amazing grace. Amen. Perhaps some of you that are listening today may be familiar with the writings of C.S. Lewis, either his fictional works or his non-fiction works, and know that he was a brilliant man. Being the science fiction buff that I am, I enjoyed reading his fictional Space Trilogy. Another popular series that you might be familiar with is his fiction series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Perhaps you've even seen the movies made of the first few books in this series. Well, friends, C.S. Lewis is also well known for his writings in defense of the Christian faith, the best love probably being mere Christianity. What's amazing is he once described his own story in this way. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, and this is a reference to the college at Oxford where Lewis attended. 
night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men." and his compulsion is our liberation. There C.S. Lewis, friends, made an astute observation when he said, his compulsion is our liberation. You see, we've talked about this before, that God was compelled by his own love for us to undertake and set in motion a plan to liberate us from the consequences of our rebellion against him, our sin, if you will. And this ingenious plan of God may be summed up in one word. What if you are asked, what is the main theme of the Bible? Could you sum it up in just one word? Well, my friends, that word would be redemption. The Bible is actually the unfolding drama of redemption, to borrow from the title of a theology book written by Dr. William Graham Scroggy who died in 1958. And if we could picture an open umbrella with the word redemption sitting over the top, we could place another word underneath, a word that most of us use over and over again. That word would be salvation. And friends, let me suggest that it's best to understand salvation as the end result of redemption, redemption being the means. Well, the pinnacle experience in the lives of the Israelites that forever etched into their minds the picture that God was their covenant God, Yahweh, if you will, and that he was a God of salvation was the Red Sea crossing, their exodus out of Egypt, recorded in Exodus chapters 14 and 15. Remember now, the book of Exodus begins with the Israelites already living in Egypt. Jacob and his family migrated there during the famine in Canaan. In Exodus chapter 1, we learn that Joseph and his brothers and their descendants are all now dead and gone, and a new pharaoh is now in power, a pharaoh who knew nothing about Joseph's rich history in Egypt. In fact, what began as a land of blessing, food supplied during the famine, became a land of bondage. The new pharaoh's paranoia and suspicion of the Israelites caused him to control their population growth by issuing an edict to kill all the male children at birth. Kind of like a post-birth abortion. (laughs) Nothing new under the sun, right? Well, as time goes on, 
The Israelites are oppressed and treated like free slave labor for the Pharaoh's massive building projects. It is during this oppressive season that God intervenes and brings the infamous ten plagues. You remember the story, right? The straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, becomes the last plague, the death of the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Pharaoh then seemed to soften and let the Israelites finally depart from Egypt. And this is where we pick up the story in Exodus 14. I'd like to suggest that you read all of chapter 14 and the victory song in chapter 15. In 14.5, we learn that once the Israelites departed, Pharaoh and his officials had a change of mind. Can you just picture them around the table and Pharaoh blurting out, What were we thinking? We just lost our greatest supply of slave labor. Then in verses 6 and 7, we read, So Pharaoh had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. Curiously, verse 8 tells us, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that he'd follow through with his plans. Sadly, their fate was to be drowned in the Red Sea while they were in hot pursuit to get the Israelites back as their slaves. And let me just say here, friends, that this perplexes a lot of people, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. But I think we have to look at it as God's judicial hardening. After all, the full account tells us that many times during the plagues, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In fact, Many people don't realize that the story actually begins back in Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, with God saying to Moses, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders I will perform. This tells me that Pharaoh was already predisposed to hold on to the Israelite slaves and not let them go. So let me ask you, how does God get his message across to the Pharaoh and all the Egyptians that he alone is the one true God? I believe he first has to show himself Lord or God over all the Egyptian gods. And this is what the plagues represented. In Exodus 12, 12, we find God saying to Moses, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. He had to show himself as superior and actually the ruler over their so-called gods. In the Psalms particularly, it is stated that the Hebrew God is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and God of Gods. Take, for example, Psalm 136, 1-3. My own conviction on this matter is that God had to, at times, during the plagues, judicially harden Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't short-circuit the process and not get the tenth and final plague. 
Why was this so critical? Well, we have to understand Egyptian religion and theology here. In their religious system, the pharaoh was either viewed as a direct descendant of the gods or a god himself with the power over life and death. And we have to remember, friends, that God's intent is always to make it known that he is the one true God to all peoples, and in this case, to the Egyptians. In Exodus fourteen seventeen and 18, God again says to Moses, I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh and his army. So here we have the first mention of the term salvation in Exodus thirteen, thirteen, and 14. As the Egyptian army was approaching and the Israelites were hemmed in by the sea, Moses said to them, Stand firm and you will see the salvation or deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Lord will fight for you. Well, friends, this word deliverance is our word salvation. Originally, salvation was understood by the Israelites as being delivered, rescued, or saved from military enemies. In other words, gaining victory over them. It was later expanded to include natural disasters or catastrophes, emergencies, plagues, famines, and sicknesses. But even later on, it acquired the deeper spiritual meaning of being delivered, rescued or liberated from sin and deliverance was equated with spiritual salvation just take a look at the victory song of moses and miriam in exodus chapter 15 this song's opening verse includes i will sing to the lord yahweh for he is highly exalted both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea the lord is my strength and my defense or a song he has become my salvation Notice at this point that salvation is couched in military language and salvation or deliverance is a reference to a military victory. So military salvation demonstrates the ultimate search and rescue operation. And friends, I propose to you that spiritual salvation is equally God's ultimate search and rescue operation. The impact of this Red Sea deliverance experience is overwhelming. Just listen to how many times it crops up in each of the major divisions of the Hebrew Bible. In Deuteronomy, a part of the Torah, the Law of Moses, the Red Sea is recounted in chapter 11, a chapter that conveys the rewards of obedience. Among the twelve historical books, the Red Sea experience is recounted in the books of Joshua and Nehemiah. In Joshua, it's found in chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 24. You may recall that chapter 2 includes the story of Rahab, who gained God's favor by hiding the spies. In Nehemiah, the Red Sea experience is recounted in chapter 9, during a solemn assembly that included a time of worship. And within the poetry and wisdom section, we find the Red Sea experience recollected in both Psalms 106 and Psalms 136. What's interesting about Psalm 106, friends, is the salvation-redemption connection in verses 7 through 12. 
verses 7 and 8, beginning with, When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake. Then verse 9, saying, He rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. And verse 10, concluding with, He saved them from the hand of the foe, from the hand of the enemy. He redeemed them. And friends, among the prophetic writings, I believe Jeremiah, in metaphorical fashion, in 49.21, uses the imagery of the Red Sea because of its reputation as the place of miraculous deliverance. So, it's no surprise that the Red Sea experience became etched in the minds of the New Testament followers of Jesus as well. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is making his defense before the elders, scribes, and high priest, he includes many of the high points in Israel's history, particularly those that reflected the hand of God operating behind the scenes. He then adds this seemingly brief but nonetheless important entry in verses 34 through 36, which include... He, God, led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for forty years in the wilderness. Remember C.S. Lewis's little snippet? God's compulsion is our liberation. Friends, the unfolding drama of redemption comes alive in the minds of the Israelites through the deep and abiding impact of the Red Sea experience. After all, it was a spectacular demonstration of the salvation of God as part of his mind-boggling plan of redemption, the ultimate fulfillment, of course, being fully realized in the life, death, and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Well, friends, I think it would be helpful if we continue to unpack and clarify some key terms under the umbrella of redemption. These are some terms that we may hear from time to time during a sermon on a, or a Sunday school class or a Bible study lesson, and I'll even guess that some of these terms may fly over our heads. So let's begin with our key term, redemption. And the key word or concept behind this term is ransomed. It carries with it the idea of being bought back or purchased from the slave market for the price of release. Its spiritual counterpart became understood as being purchased out of the slave market of sin. Jesus became our ransom and freed us from the slavery of sin. We were bought with a price, and the price was Jesus' blood. In Matthew 20, 28, we read, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And in 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20, we read, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Second, salvation. The key word and concept behind this term is the idea of being delivered or rescued, particularly from danger, an oppressor, or release from captivity. For review's sake, salvation is the end result of redemption, redemption being the means. 
The spiritual understanding of salvation reached its fulfillment in the death of Christ on the cross, on our behalf. Jesus' mission was to rescue or deliver the world from sin and the wrath of God. In Luke 19.10 we read, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save or rescue that which was lost. In Colossians 1.13 and 14 we read, For he, Jesus, delivered or rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this is reiterated in Ephesians 1.7. Friends, one of the fringe benefits of being redeemed is having a new interpersonal relationship with God. This new relationship was understood to bring us into the family of God as his adopted children, our third term. Now, we didn't elaborate on adoption, so let me say here that in the first century Greco-Roman world, adoption was common, so it provided a perfect parallel to what happens to us when we become children of God. In the Roman Empire, adoption granted the adopted child all the privileges of a natural-born child, including inheritance rights. So, as Christ followers, we are adopted children by grace. Two key statements in Scripture are, first, Romans eight fourteen through 17 For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And secondly, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And finally, our fourth term, repentance. We mentioned repentance, but again, didn't really elaborate on it. So let's do that right now. The key phrase and concept behind this term is change of mind. A modern comparison would be making a U-turn. Even the common military expression about face would also help to define it. Repentance is our response to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. It is also the doorway to our salvation experience. Repentance, excuse me, repentance, which is turning from sin, and faith, which is turning to God, should be viewed as two sides of the same coin. We see this manifested in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. They themselves, the Macedonian Christians, report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. 
Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And in Ephesians 1, 7, we find these words, In him, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And verse 13 adds, And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I see we've come to the end of today's program. My hope is that these studies are helping us to better understand some fundamentals the Bible reveals about salvation. In Acts 4.12 we read, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, Jesus, that has been given to humanity, by which we must be saved. Friends, we Christ followers are continually being criticized because we are hawking an exclusive religion. So let's be students of God's word and properly interpret it and proclaim it. One listener recently wrote in and said, regarding the segment on the Holy Spirit, I just caught your program on the radio. I love it. I'm glad to hear such clear teaching on the radio. In general, I think there's very little taught on the Holy Spirit. We really need more on this subject. Good job. Well, thanks for those encouraging words. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. Please also consider joining a Word from the Word support team. Just ask for the details. Thanks to those of you who help keep this program on the air. And thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.